Hello and welcome to Lever Time, the show where David Sirota goes on vacation occasionally. I am your guest host, Producer Frank. On today's show, we will be talking about the Democratic Party and their favorite constituents, the private equity industry, and how a certain provision in the new climate bill was actually a bait-and-switch meant to appease their ultra-wealthy donors. Then we'll be talking about the group, which is actually responsible for the historic failures of the Democratic Party, woke progressives. Yep, turns out it was woke progressives' fault to the entire time. Finally, we'll be sharing the Levers interview with economist Jason Furman, one of the top economic advisors to President Obama, and who has been one of the biggest proponents of the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes. The Levers' Matthew Cunningham Cook and Julia Rock spoke with Jason and pushed back on some of his more controversial ideas. This week, our paid subscribers who get Lever Time Premium will get to hear the extended interview with Jason Furman, in which Matthew and Julia drilled down on some of Jason's policy proposals. For the wonks out there, this is as wonky as it gets. If you would like access to Lever Time Premium, you can head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber, giving you access to all of our premium content, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Speaking of which, if you like this podcast and our reporting, please tell your friends and family about The Lever. The only way that independent media grows is by word of mouth, and we need all the help we can get to continue doing the work that we're doing. As I mentioned up top, David Sirota is on vacation this week, so I will be guest hosting. I mean, really, not so much hosting, more like uh, more like guiding us through the stories that we have been covering here at The Lever. And before we get into the stories, I should mention that uh, news broke last night that the FBI has raided Trump's Mar-a-Lago. Um, liberal Twitter is absolutely losing its mind over this news. Uh, will this, could this finally be the smoking gun that puts Donald Trump away forever and saves America from the rise of fascism? Um, no, probably not. Uh, we're not gonna, <laughs> we're not gonna spend a lot of time on this topic simply because we don't know that much as of right now. We know that the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago. According to legal experts, they must have had substantial evidence of some kind in order to be able to conduct the raid. So clearly there is some kind of wrongdoing. We know that this most likely has to do with the classified documents that Trump took uh, from the White House after leaving office and that the National Archives had been trying to recover. But other than that, we don't really know that much. So there's not a lot of point in prognosticating I'm sure more news on this story will be breaking over the course of the next few weeks. But if you want to listen to a three-hour-long deep dive on the raid and how awesome it is and how much we should be celebrating, then um, I highly suggest you check out a podcast called Pod Save America. So diving right in, we're going to be talking about our absolute favorite group of shills and charlatans, Congressional Democrats. Specifically, we'll be discussing their relationship with the private equity and pharmaceutical industries. Democrats in the Washington press corps spent the last couple of weeks touting a provision in their new climate deal that would finally close the carried interest loophole. In actuality, the provision only sort of, kind of weakened the loophole, but came nowhere near closing it, even though lawmakers and the media were saying that it did. I mean, go back through some of the coverage in the last couple of weeks and see how much corporate media was saying that this deal closed the loophole, which it 
absolutely did not. Uh, but ultimately, it didn't even matter that much because Kirsten Cinema successfully had that provision removed from the bill. So the carried interest loophole will remain as wide open as ever. Uh, over the last two election cycles, the private equity industry has donated $83 million to Democratic politicians at the federal level. And that includes $1.2 million to Chuck Schumer in just the last election cycle. And when it came to the prescription drug pricing reform in this bill, again, Democrats were touting this, saying, oh, wow, we're finally going to be able to negotiate prices with Medicare. In reality, this bill would have given Medicare the power to negotiate the price of some prescription drugs, but only 10 drugs by 2026 and then eventually 20 drugs after that. Though crucial price caps, including uh, a price cap for insulin, were struck down by the Senate parliamentarian and Chuck Schumer and the Democrats in classic fashion just sort of rolled over and said, whoops, well, the parliamentarian said we can't do it. So I guess we can't make sure that Americans don't get price gouged for necessary life-saving medicines. And it may come as no surprise to you that eight of the Senate's top 10 recipients of big pharma money are Democrats. And again, Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Sinema, pretty close to the top of that list. So when you take all of this into account, all of the political theater of the last couple of weeks starts to make a little bit more sense. To discuss this topic in more detail, I'll be joined by the levers Andrew Perez, Julia Rock, and Matthew Cunningham Cook, who wrote a really fantastic double feature for the lever last week about the Democrats and their deep ties to the private equity and pharmaceutical industries. Andrew, Julia, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us here on Lever Time today. Thanks for having me on, Frank. Yeah, good to see you, Frank. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so the three of you collectively wrote uh, some really important stories last week. You wrote a double feature, which our audience can find at levernews.com. This double feature covered a lot of the Manchin-Schumer deal, specifically the behind-the-scenes machinations happening uh, within the Senate Democrats. So first off... Can someone explain this carried interest loophole? Uh, what was it and what did the original provision do in the bill, if anything? Yeah, so basically the carried interest loophole is a loophole that allows private equity general partners to get their income taxed at the lower capital gains rate of 20% as opposed to the higher income rate of 37%. Uh, and they do it through a bunch of different complicated maneuvers. And basically everybody acknowledges that this is a preposterous tax break that only benefits the wealthiest Americans, uh, typically the highest compensated corporate executives in any given year will be from private equity firms. What the proposed bill would have done was to mildly reduce the scope of that uh, tax loophole. And just because it was a modest threat to the industry, it got defenestrated in very short order. So before we get into how it got defenestrated, let's talk really quickly about how the Democrats and how corporate media outlets were presenting this provision, because they were all saying that it was going to close it when it in actuality, was not going to close it in any way, shape, or form. Here's just a few examples. NPR headline, what closing the carried interest loophole means for the Senate climate bill. MSNBC, carried interest loophole on the chopping block. The New Yorker, will the Manchin deal finally kill the carried interest loophole? <laughs> 
I mean, like I get I get why elected officials would lie or hyperbolize about it, but how does the this is a genuine question. How does the media get away with straight up false reporting like this? I think, you know, Democrats have uh, pitched, you know, pitched this as eliminating the carried interest loophole. You know, we saw Joe Manchin talk about it, how it was like finally time to we're finally ending, you know, this like ridiculous uh, tax break. But, um, you know, so I think I think the media is sort of inclined to repeat what politicians say verbatim. Um, I also think that, you know, some of them probably just don't really know the finer details here. Um, you know, I doubt that they were like really that that so many reporters were really picking through the bill to say like, oh, oh, it actually it doesn't it doesn't eliminate the carried interest loophole. It only um, changes the the amount of time that, uh, that, that you know, companies have to hold on to these assets before they can uh, before executives can claim this uh, this tax break. You know, I just don't think um, that that a lot of reporters in D.C. are, are going to get after. Um, the, the finer details of, uh, of legislation that way, you know, it's something it's, you know, it's, it's part of why, you know, I think like why we exist, why we, um, you know, have so much shit to talk about on a daily basis is because like, we will do that. You know, we have Matthew who, who's a, who's a private equity expert. Um, so yeah. And then, and then we have me and I'm, I'm there to uh, compile some headlines where people get it wrong. Yeah, Matthew, you could consider a career in private equity if uh, if journalism. Yeah, ever Matthew, heard. have have you heard that if you if you become a private equity manager, you get to pay a really low tax rate? I know there's a bunch of benefits that come with being a private equity manager, but you do lose your soul. So I I've been on both sides of the of the media world. So I I ran comms uh, for uh, the Philly Nurses Union for several years before I came back to media, and I would occasionally take other union. And PR flax under my wing. And the first thing I would say is never forget that journalists are on the whole, both lazy stu- and stupid and really overworked on top of it. So it's a horrible combination. <laughs> that means that you need to, you need to like try and think like how a hamster would analyze the carried interest loophole. So that's, I mean, that's really the core kind of issue here too, is that it's, yes, you know, media is filled with, you know, craven losers who just seek to uh, fillet power at every turn. But at the core, there's some economics of the media profession that, that lead to uh, really bad practices that, you know, individually aren't really the fault of individual reporters, no matter how bad they might be. Got it. Much better answer than Andrew's answer, um, <laughs> to be honest. So, but a lot of this, a lot of this carried interest conversation doesn't really matter at this point because uh, everyone's favorite next gen Disney villain, Kirsten Cinema, had that provision removed from the bill. Then in regards to the 15% minimum corporate tax, uh, cinema got them to exempt accelerated depreciation deductions. Um, and then they also added in a 1% excise tax for stock buybacks. Um, Matthew, what do these words that I just said mean? And is this any kind of a fair trade? Yeah. I mean, what's so interesting about the way this bill has gone is that initially it was like, okay, well, let's very mildly tax private equity. 
And in the final version, we have actually a massive carve out for private equity, where private equity firms can now avoid this uh, 15% corporate minimum tax, thanks to uh, changes demanded by Kirsten Cinema. What that I, I mean, I, I'll get back to kind of some of the details in a second, but I think first of all is just underscoring just this is a very, very powerful industry with, frankly, obscene levels of influence in Washington that really aren't, I mean, I mean, I guess you could say military contractors, but really, really just those two. I, I would say private equity has more influence in Washington than health insurance, for example, or hospitals. And right. And, you, and you're referring to this separate vote that the Democrats held during the amendment process, which what did it fully exempt private equity from the 15 percent uh, corporate minimum Effectively, tax? Effectively, yeah, there's going to be s- questions about how it's implemented, especially because private equity is so diversified now into things like insurance and uh, other really complex uh, areas of taxation. That said, for the core functions of what private equity firms do, which is take over portfolio companies, load them up with debt, strip their assets, fuck over their workers, that is all going to be, that all of those activities are going to be exempted from the 15% corporate minimum tax. Fantastic. Uh, really great news for, for all of us. <laughs> now, I want to pivot to Chuck Schumer, uh, who, in my opinion, is the most lovable evil person on Capitol Hill. He's just he's I, I think he's got a sweet demeanor. Every once in a while, I forget that he is inherently a terrible person. Um, so, Julia, as you reported for The Lever, Schumer has some of the deepest ties uh, to both the corporate and the private equity world of any senator. So uh, how is that? How how deep do Chuck's ties run? Well, so Matthew's comments provide a great backdrop for the fact that just two days after Schumer and Manchin announced their climate tax uh, health care deal, it was reported that Chuck Schumer's son-in-law was hired by Blackstone, the biggest private equity company in the world, as its managing director of government affairs, which is like uh, lobbying, basically. This this is uh, a, a striking announcement, uh, given what what would happen in the ensuing days, where whereas Matthew compl- uh, explained the the you know small efforts to tax private equity were stripped out of the bill, and actually private equity gets gets this new carve out, but but. This, this, this is sort of a family business for Schumer because Schumer's two daughters both work for two of the four biggest tech companies in America that, that could face, you know, massive changes to their business if Schumer decides to hold a vote and pass the antitrust law that he's, he's been sitting on for the past few months. So one of his daughters, Jessica, is a lobbyist for Amazon in New York State, and his other daughter, Allison, works for Facebook. It's fucking absurd that that's not illegal. Like, it seems like such common sense policy. Also pivoting to some of the uh, pharmaceutical stuff and the prescription drug price reform, uh, Schumer allowed the Senate parliamentarian to strike down a provision that would have capped prescription drug price increases and out-of-pocket insulin costs for people with private insurance. Um, Schumer held what was mostly a theatrical vote to overrule her, but it failed. Um why are they listening to the parliamentarian? Can someone go into a little bit detail about how the parliamentarian's recommendations could be 
interpreted by maybe a more uh, a more aggressive Senate majority. Well, so they're listening to the to the parliamentarian. The only the only reason um, this you know unelected you know bureaucrat is involved in this process at all um, is you know Democrats have sort of resorted to trying to pass anything and everything they can through um, in these giant omnibus bills um, passed under the budget reconciliation process because it allows you to pass uh, bills with only fifty one votes, a simple majority vote, rather than. Um, 60 votes as, as mandated by the filibuster that, um, you know, Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema have, have refused to end. So, you know, they're, they're trying to pass everything through this process. And, um, you know, what ends up happening is that the, the parliamentarian gets to sort of advise on whether, um, certain, uh, measures, um, within these big bills are, you know, considered you know, sound uh, budgetary matters rather than just a, you know, a, a matter of policy. You know, it's it's a pretty ridiculous invention. It's It's been around for, you know, th- this specific procedure has been around since like the 80s. Um, these these bills go with what gets called a, a bird bath. They go through a bird bath um, named after Robert Byrd, um, the former West Virginia senator. And, you know, there, there are ways to kind of get around the parliamentarian. Um, you know, basically you kind of have to, when, when the parliamentarian says that some, some measure is, um, is, you know, about policy and not the budget, you know, you say that's really cool. Um, we're ignoring you. And, and, and the chair, um, the like Democrats presiding chair would have to say that like, actually this measure is germane and it, it is a budget, it is a budget matter. If, if you were to do that, what, what ends up happening is, you know, Republicans, it would take them, it would take Republicans finding 60 votes to exclude a measure. If you don't do that, you know, you remove the provision and then try to add it back in via amendment, which is what the Democrats did do, uh, this weekend. What ends up happening is it requires 60 votes to add it back in. So, you know, you've basically taken away your own power and put the part, put all of the power with the minority party here. And so, you know, when Democrats tried to add back this insulin cap for people on private health insurance plans, they had 57 votes. And you actually had votes from, including from, um, you know, seven Republicans, but the whole Democratic caucus, including Manchin and Cinema, who had both, you know, made all of these pains, pain statements about how they were never going to overturn the will of the parliamentarian. I mean, that's the real tell is they voted for this thing. They knew it was not going to happen because this this vote was being conducted in a way that it was designed to not pass. And these parliamentary rulings uh, in conjunction with Schumer are significant because of the pharmaceutical money that has flown so freely to Senate Democrats. And they've also spent some money lobby lobbying the parliamentarian themselves. Uh is that correct? So there, there's been a bunch of reporting about how um, Big Pharma basically pulled in Republican lawmakers to like take their objections, like take the pharmaceutical industry's objections to the parliamentarian. And it's, you know, it's actually been it's been reported since like last October because Democrats were going to pass this measure last late last year. Right. Like the, their drug pricing measure, they were going to I mean, they were going to pass the entire reconciliation bill late, late last year. So, yeah, Republicans have been doing big pharma's bidding at the parliamentarian's office since that point. Um, and it was, you know, it was pretty obvious how this was going to shake out. Right. Like 
But, you know, the end, the end result is that the pharmaceutical uh, provisions in this bill have been really thoroughly stripped down. Um, and it's, you know, in addition to changes that cinema had already negotiated last year, stripping the bill down. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty bad situation. And, you know, this was all happening, by the way, as cinema was getting, uh, this TV ad campaign from a pharmaceutical front group, like just blasting the airwaves in Arizona and talking about how great she was really. And, and running these ads, making her look like a fucking sports car. I, I'm not even, not even kidding. It's like the ads are like how you would sell a, like a, a convertible. So tying all of this stuff together, the lobbyists, Schumer's family members, everything that we've been covering, there is, as Julia mentioned, this big antitrust bill, uh, which Schumer has yet to hold a vote on. Um, do we know what is in this bill and why Schumer is dragging his feet on it? So we do know, we do know what's in this bill. It's it's a bill that would target the the big tech monopolies and stop them from engaging in a very basic anti-competitive behavior, which is sort of using the fact that they control these platforms, Facebook, Amazon, the App Store, Google, from from using that control over platforms to prioritize their own goods and services. Um, so this is a bill that would, would block this, this very basic type of anti-competitive activity. It was introduced by Amy Klobuchar, who you'll remember from the presidential campaign and Chuck Grassley. Um, and those senators say they have the votes to, or at least Amy Klobuchar is saying, you know, the Senate has the votes, the 60 votes it needs to pass this antitrust bill. And yet Schumer has not held a vote on it. A couple of weeks ago at a fundraiser, um, Schumer told his donors that he didn't have the votes to pass the bill, and that's why he wasn't holding a vote. He hasn't said that, uh, you know, to the public. He just said that to donors. So there's sort of this big question. Well, are the votes there? Are they not there? And if they are there, as Klobuchar and, and, and many groups, you know, pushing for the bill have said are there, why isn't Schumer holding a vote on it? Well, sort of interesting that, that two of his daughters, uh, his his two daughters work work at the companies that would that would be uh, targeted by this legislation. Yeah, I'll, I'll add in here too. You know, so there's the there's the family ties, obviously with Schumer, like that's sort of like the carrot. There's also the stick here, right? Like, um, big tech has been running uh, a giant ad campaign, like just an absolutely staggering ad campaign on this topic, um, saying that this this antitrust legislation would break our prime, like break Amazon Prime, because it would you know, keep them from preferencing their products above uh, competitors on Prime, um, and may, maybe force Amazon to uh, to allow um, people to choose other shipping options, not just their own, if they want to sell on their on their platform. Um, but so, you know, they've been they've been specifically targeting a lot of um, sort of like the most vulnerable Democrats who are up for re-election right now, like. Like in New Hampshire, there's been just a giant ad campaign. Um, there's been like campaigns uh, or ads in Arizona, uh, you know, the Atlanta area. So like they're they're really kind of pulling out all the stops here. And there's there's also, you know, I'm here in Maine. I just saw um, a, a campaign, a national campaign being run by like a conservative group, too. I think it was called the, uh, the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. Like the amount of money getting pumped into these ads is, is probably actually getting getting close to equivalent to what the health insurance industry uh, spent in 2009 and 2010 to kill the public health insurance option like so you know there's reporting that some of the vulnerable democrats don't want this bill coming up 
Um, and, you know, there's probably enough votes to kind of account for that, like among Republicans. There very well could be. But, you know, we odds are we're not going to find out. Andrew, Julia, Matthew, thank you so much for all of your hard work, your reporting. I know the three of you really uh, were burning the candle at both ends last week, uh, getting all these stories out. So thank you so much for your reporting and thank you for joining us here today. Of course. Thanks, yeah, Frank. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Lever Time. Welcome back to Lever Time. Up next, we're going to be talking about everybody's favorite punching bag. Whether you're a conservative Republican or a centrist Democrat, one of the few things that we can still agree on is that the real problem in U.S. politics is woke progressives. Or at the very least, we can agree that blaming them for everything is a great political strategy. Universal health care, canceling student debt, defunding the police, that's not how the real world works. And honestly, the fact that you're even bringing this up is like very destructive and is going to hurt all of us in the long run. Uh, obviously, I'm being facetious here, but this this isn't a new phenomenon. This is a time-honored tradition throughout history to blame progressives for being too idealistic and radical and demanding too much from the political establishment. So now we're going to the Levers interview with journalist Alex Perrine, who recently wrote a piece for the forum titled The Never-Ending War on the Woke. Myself and Julia Rock sat down with Alex to discuss the history of punching left and how this strategy has evolved over time. Uh, Alex Perrine, thank you so much for joining us here on Lever Time. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So... You recently wrote this piece for the forum titled uh, The Never-Ending War on the Woke. And, you know, we here at The Lever are regularly critiquing the Democratic Party and its leadership for constantly throwing progressives under the bus. And I know we have our ideas as to why, you know, mainly because they're the easiest scapegoat for the Democratic Party when they lose, which is always. But uh, you, you laid out a little more of like a a more detailed theory in your piece. So so what what exactly was the piece about? The piece was about, in part, going back to the history of that tendency you describe. And that history extends back basically to the, to, to the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, and I was drawing on a really good book that I would highly recommend your listeners read uh, by, called Left Behind by the historian Lily Geismer. Um, and in that book, I found this memo that a couple new Democrats had written right after the 1994 midterms. And if you remember the 1994 midterms, Bill Clinton had just been elected in 92. And in 94, the Republican Revolution had uh, had won Congress after Democrats had controlled the House basically since the New Deal. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it was a, and you would think that after um, Bill Clinton wins the presidency as a new Democrat, and the new Democrats were the sort of 80s centrist Democrats who were fighting against liberalism. You know, they were fighting against what they perceived as excessive liberalism in the party. And you would think that after someone who had formerly been the head of the of the DLC, which had been the, the main uh, leadership organization of these new Democrats, these centrist Democrats, after he wins the presidency, and then... The Republicans suddenly win control of Congress for the first time in a generation. You would think that would inspire some soul searching. And what these 
two people who were who were DLC affiliated uh, said in their memo, their sort of strategy memo instead in 1995, um, was that it was a great thing. It was great that Republicans had won control of Congress because that would finally, finally force Democrats to abandon political correctness and to uh, purge the party of its liberals. Um, it, it, and, you know, it, in a sense, it was a, a celebration of a conservative victory in that it would it would force, you know, the defeat of liberalism. So Al Frum and Will Marshall uh, wrote in 1995, the 1994 elections have wiped the slate clean and liberated Democrats from special interest liberalism. Uh, and, you know, that's that's quite a thing to say after your side you know, sort of has a has a resounding defeat. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and th- it seems to me there are sort of two things to disaggregate here. Sort of first that these strategists aren't just saying, you know, we're purging the party of progressives or the left. They're they're sort of specifically saying we're purging it of yeah political correctness, which which um, sort of as you say is this this allegation that they're representing special interests. So sort of first like. What, what exactly is sort of this distinction between just saying, you know, progressives, the left and, and specifically saying political correctness? And then two, is there concern, you know, this issue of political correctness or is political correctness sort of simply a way to, um, to sort of lay this allegation that these are actually groups that are just, you know, representing special interests. And and it's sort of a label that is very helpful to attack these people, but isn't actually sort of the root of their concerns. Yeah, uh, those are those are great questions. And the use of the phrase special interests, I think Lily Geismer makes is pretty clear. The use of the phrase special interests starts gaining currency in the Democratic Party in the 1980s. And by special interests, um, it's generally used to mean uh, black people, uh, feminists, uh, and labor. <laughs> and and then it could even be extended. It could even be extended beyond that to mean like um, environmentalists. It can mean farmers. Like if special interest comes to mean basically um, the entire New Deal coalition, which I find. <laughs> Really interesting. Uh, can't, and then, can't stand those politically correct labor organizers, you know, yes, just exactly <laughs> just like making sure that they have safe working conditions. So politically correct. My God. So then uh, uh, from and Marshall um, had prior prior to the 1994 midterms, prior to the Republican Revolution, they had been complaining since Clinton had taken office because Bill Clinton had taken office saying, I'm going to make a cabinet that looks like America. And this is something that we're probably familiar with hearing from Democrats. Uh, but it was a pretty new thing to hear a Democrat say in, in 1992 or 1993. Um, they didn't like that. They, they, they had been complaining as early as 93 that Bill Clinton needed to, uh, essentially, uh, do something about what they called his PC cabinet they being like from and marshall uh-huh yeah the and the the dlc people um and and uh to get to what you're saying i i drew the connection between uh this antipathy towards what was used to be called political correctness and what is now called wokeness uh because i think it's the same exact tendency um and it's that even sort of token um, recognition 
of diversity in the United States is too much for this group in the Democratic Party whose obsession for years has been to to win over conservative whites. And, and you know, they, they, they couch it in strategic terms, but I think it's been this just sort of a, like Ahab-like obsession for 30 years. To speak to that, there was one line from your piece that really stuck out to me that I thought like crystallized this idea, which was the big idea of the New Democrats was that denying all of these annoying groups any material gains would please the white suburban voter who had emerged from all the social upheavals of the 1960s and beyond as the main character of American politics. And I thought that was a really I think that really sums up sort of like kind of like this uh, this triangulation politics that that this is very much a part of. So how has that played out uh, over the years? And is the white suburban voters still the main character of American politics? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, if, if anything, uh, um, what's gotten interesting over the last few decades is is that uh, in the actual existing white suburbs, right? Well, the suburbs, the suburbs themselves have gotten much more diverse. The suburbs have gotten much more diverse and the voters in them, in many respects, have gotten much more liberal. Um, but at the, but as that has happened, the debate and the dialogue within the party has, has seemingly been frozen in amber. Um, I think a lot of us thought, you know, after Barack Obama and after the sort of resistance to Trump, that that would change, that the way we talk about these voters would change. Um, but if you go back and, and, and read this, you know, again, the, the sorts of strategy memos and internal documents that, that these, uh, Democratic Leadership Council people were writing in the 1990s. Like very little about it has changed. It's the, still the the basic idea. The basic theme is still um, everyone associates the Democratic Party with these hated groups that are our base, and we need to throw them <laughs> under the bus. <laughs> we need to throw them under the bus to to reach this sort of unicorn uh, white suburban voter uh, who you know, it uh, doesn't seem to believe in much. And that's what I, what it always comes down to is that like this, this person doesn't actually seem to want that much. All they seem to want in the eyes of the strategists, all they seem to want is for a guy in a suit to complain about, uh, welfare Queens. The reading about the history of, for example, welfare reform in the, in the nineties and under Clinton is, is pretty remarkable because at no point can they decide is the point of our program to reform welfare, to help poor people more efficiently? No. The point of reforming welfare is that uh, people got upset in the 80s about welfare queens. Reagan complained about welfare queens, got elected. And so therefore, we need to say we're going to end welfare. And didn't you make a point in your in your review of this book that sort of even after that it was sort of like the... <laughs> So I'm I'm not saying politically correct to me politically correct, but like the correct strategy politically when it no longer was, they still did it. Yeah, and that that's that's one of the most sort of infuriating things about it is that Bill Clinton was cruising to re-election in 1996. Um, you can go back and look at the polls. He he was cruising to re-election, and uh, they basically uh, the Republican the Republican controlled Congress um, made his welfare reform policies even more right-wing and over the objections of a lot of people in his administration a lot of people including some who resigned um on the advice of Dick Morris 
who is one of the all-time psychos in American politics. Um, he signed it. He just, he just signed it. And it was basically like they, he called, you know, I think Dick Morris called it insurance. Like it was just like, yeah, you're probably going to win anyway, but this is insurance. And that's an insane way to think about signing a piece of legislation that affected a, 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 a social welfare program that had, had been in effect since the New Deal and that affected the lives of of actual living Americans, you know, and it, it was this sort of it was a, there was a callous indifference to the effects of policy because the point of policy was only to win elections. And that attitude uh, has persisted. And if your idea is that, like, the point of policy is just to win elections and the people what we need to win over are imaginary reactionary whites, um, that's going to lead to some really stupid places. <laughs> It always boggles my mind that, like, I, I have a personal theory that, uh, and it's it's not unique to me, but that, you know, if elected leaders put forward ideas and policies that are more progressive, that are uh, more forward-thinking, that do help potentially marginalized groups, that the Overton window will shift eventually. You know, I mean, like, Reagan kind of demonstrated that in the 80s, that, like, he basically convinced the entire country that government is bad, like, which, like, was it was like a minority position before he took office. And then by the time he left, like, most Americans were like, oh, yeah, government is bad. So, like, do you have any ideas to why that never happens? Why the Democratic Party doesn't make a push for things that they know will actually benefit people and potentially change the public consciousness is it just out of fear, cowardice? Is it behold? Like, what? What do you think? Well, that's a, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I want a, I want a very exact uh, answer, the... Alex. I need to know exactly why this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the the fact is, the Democrats have a really weird coalition, and and you can see this in other uh, wealthy countries with sort of left of center parties that have been lost in the wilderness for a long time. Um, and their, their coalition, you know, consists of, uh, the groups that are derisively referred to as the special interests still, which is, you know, poor people, people of color, um, labor. And then, but then, you know, a huge part of their coalition is, is at this point, um, educated, fairly well off professional class people. Um, that leads to a lot of like, uh, contested ideas of like what the party should actually be doing. But I think that, that this idea of shifting the Overton window, Democrats have this idea that what they need to do is operate in the shadows so no one knows what they're doing and that they actually think they can improve people's lives, but only on the margins. And this has actually been the policy tendency for many years. And it's, you know, the sort of hangover from Reagan. Um, this idea that everyone is suspicious of big government. So we cannot say we're doing big government. We have to operate. Uh, mm. We have to fix things only on the margins, and we can't, um, you know, do new big programs. And it goes to Cass Sunstein, the the incredibly influential economist, um, called the nudges. Obamacare was sort of built on on a lot of these ideas, um, and you know, their idea, and it's in part just a matter of age, because a lot of these people are still shell shocked from the Reagan Revolution. Um, their idea is that like people will revolt and uh and and go against us if we try to do big good things and if we talk about the big good things we want to do and and this is reflected too in the fact that you know all the senate can do is sort of 
you know, uh, uh, affirm judges. Like that's, it's just a judge affirming factory that does no <laughs> legislation. Um, and legal, like, yeah, that sort of like legal, that sort of legal liberalism has been the dominant tendency in, in liberalism for years because it's like, well, you know, we're not going to get, we're never going to get another great society. We're never going to get another new deal. So what we can do is just install a bunch of judges who will tinker in the margins to like make things a little bit better. Um, and the, they don't even really have a, they don't even have a sort of theory of how to change public opinion, and that's been one of the one of these really annoying debates over the last few years. Is this, you know, it's called popularism, but it's the idea that public opinion is fixed and naturally formed, and that political parties can, like just have to react to it instead of shaping it. And as you say, conservatives do not believe that. No, they're like, our words will lead the people. Like, we will tell yeah. <laughs> you what to, to think. We will tell you what to believe and to think. And yeah. then you'll believe it. Yeah. And then, like, suddenly 40% of the population will believe it after we tell them, get mad about this. They will. Exactly. So I, th I think this leads in well to this question, which is that, um, you know, you have this great little anecdote about a, a Politico playbook tip sheet, something we love to talk about at the lever because of how colossally stupid it is. Oh, it's the West Wing playbook tip sheet where, um, you know, the headline was what the White House doesn't want you to read. And inside is a, you know, public Wall Street Journal op-ed by Mitt Romney calling on the White House to, quote, ditch its woke advisors. And what, what your sort of ask um, in the piece is you know, Marshall and from and now other other Democratic strategists like James Carville should just acknowledge that they've won. And, you know, another example that comes to mind for me is that after the um, after congressional staffers first announced their union efforts, um, Josh Barrow had this Substack post in which he sort of said, like, this is an attempt by the more, you know, lefty staffers of Congress to push policy towards the left. And Matt Iglesias is always sort of saying this, like the Biden administration has listened way too much to these, you know, basically woke, I think is implicit in what he's saying, leftists. Why do you want these strategists to admit that they've won? Um, and, and, and what exactly does it mean, you know, for the Democratic Party that they have one. Yeah, uh, when you when you look at the intra-party history here, um, you see how absurd these arguments are. Because first of all, Joe Biden is the president. <laughs> Joe Biden. <laughs> if you if you remember if you remember if you were if you are as uh, you know I'm I, I you know I'm an ancient fossil, but if you remember the 2008 election, Joe Biden was chosen because he was already an anachronism. Uh, Barack Obama, in his infinite wisdom, was like, I need a really out of touch old white guy to balance, <laughs> to balance me. And Biden was already seen as the past of the party at that point. We had moved beyond needing guys like him. So it's really wild now that he achieves his life's ambition and, and wins the presidency. And, you know, his administration, there's a really desperate need among people whose long-standing goal was to elect people like Joe Biden, when they watch that not translate into, um, you know, unbelievable political success to, like, search around for someone else whose fault that is. Um, and, you know, the, the fact of the matter is people who have been saying since the 1980s um, that we need more people like Joe Biden in charge are now have him and Ron Klain um, and they're running things. And <clears throat> what's happening is that, you know, Biden's approvals are bad, 
The remarkable thing is that his approvals are incredibly bad among young people. This is the most incredibly left-wing young generation in the history of American politics. Um, I'm sure your listeners know this, but that's not actually – it's not actually true that young people are always left-wing and then they get conservative as they get old. That's not actually true. <laughs> you know, like the the 60s were not – they were – you know, that was TV. <laughs> that was movies, right? Like there were conser- uh-huh. a lot of conservative young people in the 60s. Um, but, you know, we've we've engineered through uh, economics an incredibly left wing young generation and they hate this administration. They hate it. I think it was one percent of 18 to 29 year olds in the most recent poll who strongly approve of Joe yeah, Biden, which is just approved. a number I cannot wrap yeah. my mind around. So, <laughs> who are you people like show yourself <laughs> show yourself right now. <laughs> And so when you're facing those numbers, I mean, I don't know, it seems it seems nuts to me to go back to go back to the anti-PC well, right? Like to go back to, well, the problem is he's listening to too many PC people. The problem is all of these PC con- congressional staffers. I mean, look at Congress. Look at Congress and tell me. Oh, yeah, the problem is they're young liberal staffers. That's the problem with congressional leadership is their young liberal staffers are forcing them to take unpopular opinions. That kind of advice is just to flatter leadership, to flatter the old people in charge, the old people in charge who are screwing up. um, They want to be told it's someone else's fault. That's that's all that advice is. It's so frustrating. I hate when people call Joe Biden a socialist because then socialism gets 100 percent of the blame and we get zero percent of the socialism. It's (laughs) my least favorite thing. Well, I think, you know, the last thing we want to ask about and uh, I guess we're sort of asking you to put your put yourself in the shoes of a Democratic strategist. So maybe this is unfair. But, um, you know, sort of as as we've been talking about the the Republican Party, of course, it's clearer than ever is really embracing um, the sort of more extreme wing of the party and even maybe sort of benefiting from uh, the, you know, radicalism and extremeness and craziness of, of those people without sort of explicitly embracing them sometimes. And of course, the Democratic Party, as we've been talking about, does basically the opposite. Is, is this sort of like an insurmountable structural problem or or what do you think it would take um, for the Democratic Party to sort of change its relationship to uh, uh, the sort of more left-wing or um, not even left-wing, but I guess as you've pointed out, just the people who actually constitute the base of the party to embrace them rather than skip Yeah, it's a, t- it's a it's a tough question. Um, and it's sort of, it's, it, it, honestly, that's that's the question for the left of center parties in, in the West right now. Um, and the conservative movement, you know, they have a lot of money on their side and they also have um, a, a media infrastructure on their side that uh, liberals have not emulated. And it's going to take, on the one hand, it's going to take the current generation of leadership somehow exiting the stage. Um, and, you know, father time might take care of that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, but it's, it's going to, I think what it's going to take is, um, this is a leftist cliche to say organization, but to be more concrete, it's going to take, uh, I think the new labor movement, the new labor movement is going to be huge on that. And, um, you know, it's a long, hard road. Uh, but, um, you can see the ground shifting in terms of, of 
workers actually coming around to believing they should organize at the workplace um, and in the workplaces that currently exist, right? It's not going to be, it's not going to be the old hard hat factory guys of, of, of your, it's the, the sort of service workers and, and even academic workers that are sort of organizing now. And then from there, from there, you got to organize locally, take over your local party. Um, and that's actually the huge, you know, I live in New York and I have been, uh, studying, you know, the local Democratic Party for years and years and years. It's still a patronage machine. It still sucks. But there are groups that have been organizing for years to work to take it over, and they've actually made huge, like, strides. They've made huge strides. Um, and that's where it's going to have to come. It's going to be, it's going to be making the party, it's going to be, you know, a force like labor. Um, actually making the Democratic Party democratic. And that's going to have to come. That's going to have to come one place at a time. And I think that's the only way that these tendencies change. It's always the unsexy boots on the ground, hard <laughs> organizing work that people don't want to like, you know, people yeah. want an easy answer. And it's it's never the, the answer is just like, we'll put in the time and effort for years and years and years. Yes. And then unfortunately, then yes. maybe we'll get somewhere. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Alex, this was awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it was really fun. Thank you. Okay, for our final segment today, we've got something very, very exciting. So we're going to be sharing the Levers interview with Harvard economist Jason Furman, who was the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors for President Obama. Jason has been one of the biggest online proponents of the Federal Reserve's recent interest rate hikes to curb inflation and, as Fed Chair Jerome Powell has explicitly said, to get wages down. So the levers Matthew Cunningham Cook and Julia Rock sat down with Jason to push back on some of his opinions and question whether the Fed's strategy of crushing workers and inducing a recession is actually the best thing for the economy and for the country as a whole. So Matthew, depending on who you ask right now, we are two quarters into a recession marked by negative GDP growth, or the economy is booming, uh, demand is high, consumer inflation expectations are falling, and the labor market is strong. Given this confusion or these contradictions about the state of the economy, the Federal Reserve's claim that data will continue to lead decisions about by how much to hike interest rates is somewhat misleading because the data don't necessarily paint a clear picture of the economy. Thanks, Julia. Yeah, Jason Furman embodies uh, some of these contradictions uh, that you see in debates over economic policy. So he accepts that inequality is a problem, that double-digit Black unemployment should not be a policy aim, and even that unions should be stronger. But he's also publicly advocating for large interest rate hikes that will throw millions of workers out of work, that will increase the bargaining power of capital against the bargaining power of labor, and seems to shrug off the consequences by saying that monetary policy is a blunt instrument and that these are technocratic questions. So so we spoke with Jason Furman uh, about inflation. This is a guy who uh, was the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama and before that was the deputy director of the National Economic Council under Larry Summers. Um and the results were interesting. So please listen on. Um, so I, I guess to start off, you know, is kind of just a general question that I know you've probably been asked a bunch of times before is kind of where do we stand kind of 
with the economy, you know, what's, what's your big take, you know, what are some historical antecedents in your view to kind of where we are right now, you know, and kind of how does your perspective on those historical antecedents inform kind of your analysis of the situation today? Well, <laughs> you're starting right in with the incredibly difficult uh, questions. Um, so I'm stumped. <laughs> I don't know the answer. Um, maybe we should just stop right now. Um, no, I don't love the historical antecedents because I just think the best one is 2022. We just have never had this combination of things. So I think you need to reason through it. And when you reason through it, you need to be prepared to update your reasoning based on the data, and you need to put a big error band around whatever you think. Um, a second difficulty we have is I'd love to be able to predict what growth is going to be in the second half of this year. I don't even know what growth was in the first quarter of this year. And that ended more than three months ago, but there's two different government data sources. One of them shows a big increase in growth. One of them shows a big decrease in growth. And I don't, not sure which of those is correct. So I'm trying to look forward, but I can't even look through the rearview mirror. Um, if I had to guess, now that I did all the caveats and complaining and whining about not understanding things, um, I think there's a chance for a so-called soft landing in the US economy where inflation comes down, where we resume seeing real wage growth for workers where that happens with a slowdown in job growth, but not a reversal. But there's also two ugly scenarios, um, one of a recession and another of a sustained period of high inflation without wages keeping up. Um, and those ugly possibilities are out there too. Let's talk about kind of a wage price spiral. So sometimes on Twitter, you have said you, I mean, you do think that wages and prices are linked. Uh, you've, you've said that a few times. Um, and so kind of what, you, when you're saying inflation, is that what you're concerned about? What what does kind of the word inflation mean to you in, in this sense, in terms of kind of a, a, a causal uh, relationship? Yeah. So I don't love the word wage price spiral because different people hear it different ways. And I think the way a lot of people hear it is, Wages go up 3%, so prices go up 4%, so wages go up 5%, so prices go up 6%, and soon everything's going up at infinity. I think that's a very, very unlikely scenario, and to the degree that someone wants to dismiss and mock that, um, you know, possibly I'd, I'd join them in the dismissal and mocking. Um, where I think it gets more complicated is if you could do an experiment and you waved a wand and every single business in the country had to pay every single worker 10% more, they would raise their prices. I don't know how much they'd raise their prices. It might be a bit less than that increase in wages and they'd absorb some of it in lost profits, maybe some of it in extra productivity, but prices would go up some, just like when jet fuel goes up, airlines raise prices and when chicken breast prices go up, restaurants uh, raise their prices. Um, and the converse is also true. When price growth is faster, uh, if all the prices in the economy went up 10% tomorrow, wages would go up. I don't know how much they'd go up. Even without index contracts, you'd have workers walking in saying, hey, here's how much more it costs me to get to work. You need to pay me more. And employers would say, you know what? I don't want to pay you more, but 
I'm actually selling my stuff for more, so I can afford to pay you more. And it's actually attractive for me to get workers, and I don't really have a choice because otherwise the person down the street will. So, so I think wages and prices are definitely linked. That's what gives inflation a certain amount of persistence and momentum, which is a bad thing. Uh, the flip side of it's a good thing. I do think people will get paid more um, because of the price increases, although not enough more, uh, at least so far, to compensate for them. You know, it's always hard to respond to uh, an anecdote. Um, so, but bear with me. Uh, so, you know, Walter Ruther in the 50s uh, sought to negotiate over the price of cars. Uh, and the big three just totally resisted, but there was, it was, it was, I believe it was a core issue that, that was a strike is that they wanted to, they wanted an increase in wages without the same corresponding increase in the price of cars. Um, and, you know, I mean, just, you know, I, just the last few days, you know, I've just been doing kind of a crash course and reading through your work, you know, unions don't appear too often uh, in your analysis. Uh, but what, what do you kind of make of, of, of something like that, of, of kind of, you know, I mean, we do it in the public sector these days, I would say, you know, all the time, we being the labor movement where I worked for, you know, many years, um, uh, where it's like, oh, you know, we don't just want higher wages for teachers, we want, you know, smaller class sizes, we want more social workers, things like that. It, it's something that since Ruther's death, we've seen very little of, but but kind of what do you make of, of some type of proposal like that, whereas kind of organized labor seeks to kind of bargain over prices in addition to wages? Look, there's some evidence in the scholarly literature, I'd be interested in your own personal experience, that there can be a difference between countries where labor unions and collective bargaining covers a very large fraction of the workplace workforce and where it covers a small fraction. Um, I did something with a trade unionist from Europe uh, a few weeks ago, and they were actually trying to restrain some of the wage growth. They said, we want extra wage growth to compensate for the domestic inflation. We do not want indexation tied to the increase of oil and natural gas. That sucks for our members, but we understand that the employers are also paying the higher costs for oil and natural gas, and they just can't afford to do that extra raise. So you have seen unions in Germany basically negotiate, in some ways, a smaller raise because they're afraid of losing employment. And one thing you see in Germany, when they have recessions, they tend not to lose a lot of jobs. Um, they tend to actually really hold on to their workers. We have much more... Um, you know, much worse fluctuations in employment. So you see that in Germany. It's hard for me to see an American labor union going into a negotiation and saying, like, we don't want as much of a pay increase. And by the way, I wouldn't tell them to do that. Um, if you're not, you know, doing collective bargaining at the level of the economy as a whole, the idea that you're going to internalize how it affects the economy as a whole, when all you're representing is your members who are, you know, for your particular union, 2% of the country, let's say, for a very big union. Um, uh, I don't think you should do that. So so I think it's, you know, what you describe sounds to me like a possibly a bygone era in the United States. It sounds to me like what we might still have in Europe. And for the era we have in the United States, unions should be trying to grow themselves and trying to get the best deal for their members, but we'll have a hard time trying to sort of optimize over the macroeconomy as a whole. 
when they're just a, a part of it. But I don't know. I, I, if you think something different, correct me. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, obviously one, one reason people are sort of hesitant to make the, the comparison to the 70s is because, you know, unions are just uh, nothing in the U.S. like they were at that time. But also, you know, inequality in the United States has increased since the 70s. And, and there's sort of no reason that that, that trend wouldn't continue. Um, you know, why, why has income inequality been been rising in the U.S. since that time? And what is it that, that policymakers uh, should be doing to address whatever forces are driving inequality? So this is almost as hard as the question you opened up with, with where we are in the economy. The difference is that I've been thinking, researching, and talking to people about this question for more than 25 years now. So I've had more time um, to prepare for the answer. Uh, you know, in my view, there's a lot of people that want the one cause of inequality. I think it's such a large increase that there's room for a lot of people's causes. I roughly, when I'm teaching my class, divide them into two buckets. One is the competitive explanation, a slowdown in educational attainment, a slowdown in the pace at which we're generating, for example, college graduates. At the same time, there's things like computers that are creating more of a reward for skill and just trace out the supply and demand curves, more demand for workers with higher levels of education, less producing of them, their wages go up relative to others. Um, and then I teach my class a set of institutional um, explanations uh, rooted in the decline in labor unions, the decline in the real value of the minimum wage, an increase in um, the concentration of businesses, which has made it easier for them to negotiate. If you have one hospital per city, which you often do now, where there used to be five, six, or seven that merged together, that one hospital is going to be able to pay nurses less um, than it used to be able to. So I think there's both these competitive explanations and these institutional explanations in terms of which ones are most important sort of depends on which time, which place, which form of inequality we're talking about. And my pretty broad ecumenical diagnosis of the problem with lots of different causes is very consistent with my diagnosis of solution. I would do everything. Uh, I would have a more progressive tax and transfer system. I would have stricter antitrust. Uh, I would have stronger labor unions. I would raise the minimum wage. I would pursue an agenda around things like um, poaching, wage collusion, and the like. Um, I'm sure there's a couple important things that I left out of my list. That doesn't mean I don't support them. It means um, that I just didn't happen to mention them. So yeah, a lot of causes, a lot of lines. Uh, the, but the thing I want to end on, though, is I really don't think it's hopeless and the deck is totally stacked against everything. If you look at wage growth, wage growth for lower paid workers was higher from 2015 through the present than it was for higher paid workers, pretty much every year from 2015 um, through the present. I think part of that is the minimum wage was raised quite a lot and about states covering, I think, about two-thirds of workers. I may have that ratio wrong. And part of that is um, um, I think we had a hot labor market in sort of a good way, not an over-hot labor market, which I think we have now. And from 2015 through 2020, that helped. So I do think this isn't just everything always gets worse. We do have examples of progress we can look at, and that should just motivate us to do more, uh, not to do less. 
So, yeah, we've been talking a lot about climate lately, and basically what Furman is articulating is an all-of-the-above approach to diagnosing the inequality crisis. Oh, it could be educational attainment gaps, or it could be the decline of union bargaining power. Who really knows? And really, that's dangerous. Because the decline of the labor movement in the private sector, which has gone from 34% in 1954 to less than 6% today, is really essentially the sole cause of the growth of inequality. And if you understand it that way, you get a lot more clarity in your economic analysis. That is to say, you oppose any policy that hurts unions, like higher interest rates and throwing people out of work. So then we we get into some questions about Jason Furman's approach to economic questions more broadly and his history with that. And he says something that's really interesting. I was on the side of more expansionary macroeconomic policy in most every debate from 1996 when I joined that debate up until February of 2021. Ah, okay. So until it really mattered, you were in support of macroeconomic expansion. And then as soon as the Overton window shifted, Jason Furman goes to support policies that will throw millions of Americans out of work. Got it, Jason. And let's be clear, this is really all about the elite being mad that people got big checks from Biden. And in particular, middle-class families above the poverty line. Jason thinks it was bad policy to give my family, for example, three people with a household income in 2019 of less than 90K, money. Meanwhile, he lives in a $6 million mansion. I, you know, think inflation, I think unemployment is much worse than inflation. Um, I think real wages matter a lot. And... Um, you know, I, I sort of sympathize with everything you just said. I think, though, it is a quantitative thing. I think the government overdid it in terms of fiscal and monetary stimulus. And I think that's not helping um, right now. So look at um, real wages, wages adjusted for inflation. They're falling at the fastest pace they've fallen in 40 years. Part of that is some of the inflation is external. It came from, you know, Russia raising the price of oil, and you wouldn't expect wages to keep up with that. And that's the type of bad luck that goes away. But I think part of it is that when you heat the economy way too quickly, you get, um, you know, prices tend to adjust more frequently than wages adjust, for example. That's something John Maynard Keynes talked about um, nearly a um, hundred years ago. And so prices go up more than wages go up because wages are stickier, as economists say. So I don't think this level of heating is obviously good for workers. The best measure is real wages, and that measure is not doing well. Um, I you know, have re sort of phrased the slogan for my approach of heating the economy one log at a time rather than throwing all the logs on the fire um, at once. You know, it's certainly the case last year that no one was saying like, hey, let's do this. Sure, we're going to have 6% inflation, but it's worth it. Um, and I say 6 
Yeah, I mean things like the American Rescue Plan and what the Fed did after that. Um, you know, so and then in terms of worker bargaining power, I guess I'm just not even positive. You know, you had more strikes in 2018 and 19 than you had over the last two years. So Furman doesn't think that this level of heating, and and it's not quite clear if he means just in prices or also in the labor market, is good for workers. He says that unemployment is worse than inflation, but but he's endorsing rate hikes that will increase unemployment. So there's a clear contradiction here between what he says about the dangers of unemployment for people at the at, at the bottom end of the income strata and the policy prescriptions that he has in mind. So so this is basically it for part one of our conversation here. And what I think it shows is that when you get into the weeds of talking about Furman's positions in earnest, he's very difficult to pin down. That's very different from his public persona. Furman is quoted in the media all the time. And what comes out in those pronouncements is that the cash grants in the American Rescue Plan caused the inflation that we see today and that there should be two approaches taken. One, the Fed should raise interest rates. And two, Congress should take deflationary action on things like prescription drug pricing reform. But what Furman seems to be totally incapable of understanding is that the Fed raising interest rates is incredibly straightforward, as opposed to Congress passing prescription drug pricing reform in the context of an enormously powerful industry that is deeply wedded to obstructing any meaningful price reform. And you can see this very clearly in the new Inflation Reduction Act, which nobody thinks is going to reduce inflation in the short term. Drug negotiations with Medicare will not begin until 2026, so there's no deflationary benefit there. But by contrast, you have the Fed, which can raise interest rates at each of its meetings and enjoy the support of major sections of capital, because ultimately they support any action that crushes labor, especially when Amazon and Starbucks and now other independent unions are on the receiving end of successful unionization campaigns. And when someone like Jason Furman says that we need to raise interest rates, he's joining a powerful chorus of very powerful people, which is not the case if he's supporting prescription drug pricing reform. Those differentials in power are not present in Furman's analysis. It's as if economics exists in a vacuum where we are all equal players on a stage, which is indeed a central premise of classical microeconomics. But as journalists... We just can't afford to ignore the relationship between power, money, and policy. All right, that's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium will get to hear this week's bonus segment, which is the extended interview with Harvard economist Jason Furman. If you'd like to subscribe to Levertime Premium, head over to levernews.com. And when you subscribe, you will also get access to all of the Lever's website, our weekly newsletters, and our live events. And that's all for the low, low price of $8 a month or $70 for the year. One last favor, please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Levertime on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find the show. It gets our numbers up. It's generally helpful for us as an organization. Also, make sure to head over to levernews.com and check out all of the incredible reporting that our team has been doing. Until next time, I am producer Frank. Rock the boat. <laughs>